on YouTube, topic is always king. Like you need to have just a good topic. I find that even more important than thumbnail and title. Famously, people think that they are either a math person or a creative person. And I wanted to combine the two to show that it can be done. Welcome to How to Make a Science Video. Do you choose a format for your video? You're listening to Simon Clark and Sophie Ward, and we have years of experience making videos about different topics in science on YouTube. And I have a science communication master's. Yes, you do like to bring this up. Yeah, because it's in the script, Simon. Don't get jealous. I'm not. We both make science videos, and we're both curious about how best to share science with the world. This week, we're asking, how do you choose a format for your video? To find out how she does it, we're talking to... Hello, I'm Toby and I run the YouTube channel Tibbies, where I post videos that I would say are anything that I find interesting within math, physics, astronomy or the history of science. I'm mostly on YouTube, but I'm also on TikTok these days as well and enjoying making some short videos as well. So you can find me in either place. But how are you finding TikTok? I'm actually liking TikTok. I didn't want to like it in a way that I resisted it for ages. For like two years or so, I liked it, wouldn't download it. I didn't want to be on it. I didn't really engage with it. And then even when I was like, actually, you know what? This isn't going away. Like lots of people are downloading this. It's like the most popular app. Maybe I should, you know, dip a toe in that water to be a part of this rising tide, it seems. Mm. I was making content there for over a year that didn't really resonate with the platform. Like I didn't really gain any momentum and I kind of was posting not that great videos, like they they weren't that high quality and I just never really saw much engagement. After a year of trial and error of that on TikTok, I have finally in the last like six months maybe stumbled upon a format that is working and resonating and I'm getting that engagement that I was kind of maybe looking for and and that I hadn't seen even on YouTube before. I'm talking things like stitches and duets and people dressing up as the character from my math explainer video and like reacting to it. It's like being crazy for me. I've never seen that kind of enthusiasm even on YouTube being there for years. I've seen it in the last few months on TikTok. Yeah. Wow. You have two slightly different niches, would you say? Like the platform specific? Yes. The long form videos I am making on YouTube and have been making there for a few years now are completely different really to the short form videos that I'm making on TikTok. And I have also been um, cross posting them now to YouTube shorts. So you can find them there as well. They're the same videos, but it's on TikTok that most people are sort of seeing them and reacting to them. And they're different in the sense that, well, you only have 60 seconds, so you you need to be really brief and and you need to pick something short and interesting. Whereas my long form videos on YouTube can be very slow, very in-depth. Yeah, on TikTok, I'm doing this standing outside with the chalkboard, chalk math on there, but they all happen to be about the math of the fourth dimension. And I made a few on that topic and people are like, oh, this is really interesting. And I was like, yeah, this is really interesting. I'm really interested in this. I'm just going to keep making videos about the same topic forever right now. Like 
until further notice, <laughs> until further notice, my TikTok is only about the math of the fourth dimension, which is super niche, even within the niche of math. And I'd say my YouTube channel and my long form content is nowhere near that niche. It's like all of math, all of physics, all of the history of science. It's it's much more broad. That's great. I was going to say, like looking at your YouTube, you've really dabbled across an interesting range of formats and subjects, which we'll, we'll come to. Before we get to all that, if somebody asks you what you do for a living, how do you describe it? It depends who's asking. <laughs> if I don't mind them knowing that I am a YouTuber, I'll say I, I'm a YouTuber, I, I make YouTube videos. I say that to someone probably if I think they are also a YouTube viewer or are possibly interested in the content that I make. But you know, it depends. I recently got asked to be on jury duty by like the court system and they ask you like, what do you do? Oh, cool. In such a formal setting as that. I didn't want to just write the one word YouTuber because I was like, this is just opening a can of worms in a setting where I don't really want to explain myself. I wrote something like, I produce science videos mm. for the internet. I, or like I, sometimes I say things like science communication online. Or sometimes if I really don't want to talk about what I do, I say something like math tutoring, which is not <laughs> what I do at yeah. all, but close enough. That's the close it down example. Like, no, we're not going any further than this. Like math tutoring, full stop. I had a similar thing, actually, on my marriage certificate. You have to put down your profession on your wedding certificate. Do you? I didn't know that. And I was like, what, what do I put? And I, I actually ended up putting YouTuber slash author because I thought the slash author made it look more professional. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, it's true. But I was like, I don't want to just go down as like just YouTuber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Toby, it sounds like you've got TikToker as an option as well. Do you not want to go by TikToker? I feel like such an old man. Is that what people are called on TikTok? Yeah, TikToker. Yeah, I suppose that's an option, but I'd be very unlikely to say that because not because of any negative connotations, but I guess I don't actually make any money on TikTok. For me, TikTok is like mm -hmm. this thing that I'm doing because I think one day growing an audience there will be good and I've enjoyed it and I've enjoyed that engagement. But YouTube is really my bread and butter. So I would say they're more of my mm. occupation. So do you think the fact that TikTok isn't something that you're doing for monetary gain, it's just something that you are doing kind of for the joy of it? Yes, there's that aspect of you're growing an audience, you're hoping this is going to be useful one day, but like that must change how you think about the content going on TikTok versus on YouTube. Is it like there's less responsibility almost when you're making a TikTok? I don't feel an enormous difference in how I approach the content. Um, maybe... It is one factor that allows me to be less stressed about it and less perfectionist about it. But I think also it being 60 seconds helps with that too. And also the culture of TikTok helps with that anti-perfectionism for me. It's just that mm -hmm. when I scroll through my feed, I will see videos with mistakes or kind of poorly cut together and it will make me feel that it's easier to upload something there. So maybe all of those factors kind of contribute to it being less of a mental burden to do. And we touched on it when you talked about jury duty. Do you think of yourself as a science communicator then or just when you have to write down who you are for jury duty? <laughs> 
To be honest, mostly just when I have to do jury duty. When it's formal, I'll call myself a science communicator. But really, I love calling myself a YouTuber where I can because I love YouTube and I feel enormously grateful that I can do YouTube like as a job. For me, that was such a dream and I didn't expect to be able to make it a reality. So when I even think of myself and my own identity as a YouTuber, that makes me feel the best because that is like I achieved a, a dream of mine. So yeah, I, I have good connotations with YouTube. I, I like it as a platform. And were there specific YouTubers when you started making videos that were your inspirations, you know, that informed either your format or your content? There were a lot of YouTubers back when I was getting started, you know, really inspired me. And even still today, the likes of Vsauce is one in particular, Michael Stevens. I really like his content. It's, it's always inspired me. But there's not a particular creator who really inspired my format per se. I think the videos that I make, in a way I make them because I don't see them being made in that way by anyone else. But certainly the idea of making videos at all and being on this platform, I've been inspired by so many of the early science creators. Yeah, I feel like your videos are so unique in that sort of it's calm storytelling, like, but also very in-depth. I just think, yeah, it is really mm. unique and very Tibby's in brand. It's excellent. Um, oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You said before that you are living the dream, your dream. What was the arc to getting here? How many videos did it take? I mean, don't need a set number, but was there a point where you were like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen. Like, I'm going to be a YouTuber. Yeah, I, I guess the story is that, you know, all the way back in high school, I loved YouTube. I love watching science YouTubers. And actually, even back then, I had a go at making a science video myself. There's a video uploaded to my channel, I think like 2010, which was when I was in high school. And I was probably like age 15 or, or something like that. I can't remember the exact dates, but it was a video that I was just like, yeah, this would be a cool thing to try. It never gained any like real momentum or anything. It was just kind of a video that's not that good, but it was a hobby of mine. And then I went to university and I studied physics and math and I was, you know, doing the serious sort of academic road. And I thought, well, I don't know exactly what I'm going to make out of studying these topics, but I know that to me, they are the most interesting and I find them challenging. I want to do them. I don't know what the job's going to be at the end, but I'll figure that out later. And that kind of ended up happening. But yeah, I did my bachelor's and then I did in Australia. And I think in the UK as well, the honours degree system, which is something America doesn't really have. But I did my honours in physics at ANU in Canberra. And then I stayed there to do a PhD in physics. And throughout my studies, I had still been making little videos here and there, uploading them to my channel, which is still the channel I have today, to the Tavis channel. But they just never really gained much momentum because they were never really consistent or any good. But it was while I was a PhD student that I actually was like, man, I really wish I could actually grow an audience on YouTube. That would be so fun. I wonder what I could do differently. And kind of the thing I settled on was to try to be consistent in some way. And that was kind of manifesting as an upload schedule. And I was like, all right, instead of making a video every six months, let's try and do one like every week or every two weeks. And I did that schedule of videos while I was doing my PhD. And I gained through that enough momentum that I actually saw for the first time a very small audience starting to grow. And 
the momentum was something that I really noticed. It felt like to me a bit of a snowball of growth on YouTube and that if I was to keep making videos and keep doing the same thing, it would continue to grow. That's how it felt to me. And then, so about a year into the PhD, I had this big sense of momentum on YouTube, but I wasn't really loving the topic of my PhD. I wasn't super passionate about it. And I ended up making this decision to leave the PhD and do YouTube full time, which at the time was kind of a really risky decision, but I didn't really see it as so. And I didn't really realize that at the time, because I remember when I made that decision, I had 50,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is a decent number, but not yeah. an enormous number. Not enough that it would guarantee that my channel would always like keep growing or be big or anything. But you had the momentum. Yeah, I've grown a lot more than that now. Yeah. And I look back and I think, wow, I was very certain that I was going to keep growing. I wonder why. But yeah, I guess I had this <laughs> sense of momentum and that I was able to keep that up for a while. Yeah, so I left the PhD and I've been doing YouTube full time ever since then. And I don't regret that decision. Like I feel um, pretty good about it, actually. And I don't know, I, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. One day, maybe I will go back and do a PhD on something, maybe if I've exhausted my creative juices here on, on what I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> it's still something I really respect, like the, the academic and the research world and something I did enjoy. So maybe. I have enjoyed a lot of your videos, Simon, about your own PhD journey. Mm. People say this. I don't understand why they don't put people off. People are like, <laughs> I saw your videos and you're like, it makes me want to do a PhD. And I honestly say, why? Yeah. <laughs> I was expecting the opposite effect. I watched most of your videos about you being a PhD student while I was a PhD student considering like quitting. So it was kind of like me looking at what someone else's experience is like and someone who also does science communication and YouTube. And so for me, there was like this, you know, familiarity in your experience that I really appreciated. You were like, this is how bad it's going to get. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't put me off. That's for certain. You didn't put me off. I think I put myself off by just kind of realizing more than anything that if I was to do a PhD again one day, I'd probably pick a slightly different topic, something that I was more passionate in that I think mm. I would like to spend three years on rather than just continuing what I had been doing and all that I knew at the time. If that makes any sense. Mm, yeah. I think that's the key when you do a PhD. You've got to be willing to live and breathe it. Yeah, that passion has to tide you over, doesn't it? Okay, so of all the guests that we are, we have on this podcast, I think you are the person with the greatest range of formats. You have made videos in a really interesting range of stuff looking at past exams, looking at PhD theses, a lot of asmr -y kind of content, like Bob Ross-inspired mm. stuff. I feel that I have to jump in at this moment and explain what ASMR is. If you haven't heard the term before, it stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. And it's basically a tingling sensation that some people experience on the scalp and it moves down through the neck and other parts of the body. And different people have different triggers for it. A common one is being at the opticians. Mm, I get it at the opticians when I'm told to follow the light and stuff. Uh, but for other people, it's, uh, you know, being softly spoken to, personal attention. I mean, clinical settings seems to be quite a common yeah. trigger. Uh, and there's a huge genre on YouTube and TikTok for people deliberately creating this sensation through role plays, pretending to give you medical exams or, you know, just whispering in your ear. And um, if you're not aware, it's absolutely enormous on YouTube and 
it is, as somebody who consumes it personally, a little bit weird. When you are making a new video, what is the first thing that coalesces? Is it the format? Is it the subject matter? Or is it something else entirely? It's the topic. I guess if the question is kind of how do I get an idea for a video and decide that that's the idea I'm going to do. It's a process of finding something that, first of all, I just find really interesting. And I will keep a list of things that I find interesting, whether I've read about them, heard about them, whatever. And that list I will need to consult and then see which of those things I'm interested in intersect with my sphere of knowledge. So are something that I know enough about to actually make a video on. There's plenty of things I'm interested in that I look at and I think I would need so much help to answer that question that I'm not even going to do that right now. So it has mm -hmm. to be something I intersects with, with what I know. And then the third element of it is I think that my audience would have some kind of connection to it. And that might come from me having done a video in the past on a similar topic or keyword or just me having some other kind of evidence that my audience who watch my videos would also be interested in this thing. And that's how I pick what idea to do. And then it might land in some weird new format. It might be an unboxing video, which is what my exam videos are kind of like. They're sort of inspired by like tech unboxing videos, except instead of getting a cool new phone, you get an MIT exam. <laughs> <laughs> or it, if it is a conceptual idea that might suit explaining it outside with a chalkboard. The format, it just could have comes naturally after I have the topic. I think on YouTube, topic is always king. Like you need to have just a good topic. I find that even more important than thumbnail and title because thumbnail and title are ways to like express the topic, but the topic itself Either people are interested in that or they're not. Sometimes when I make a video that doesn't perform so well, I look at it and I try not to judge the thumbnail or the title too harshly or even the video too harshly. I kind of just tell myself, you know what, actually, maybe that question or that topic is not that interesting to so many people and that's all right. And then from the topic selection... What are then the next stages? Does it depend on the format? Because obviously, like, I mean, your short film was beyond tightly scripted and, you know, that was incredible. If you're thinking of like an unboxing style, are those really tightly scripted or are those sort of your immediate reactions? Because it seems very like, you know, I think you're such a natural storyteller that I assume things are scripted, but they might not be because you're so good at telling stories. Thank you. I would say that none of my videos except for like the short film, which is different. None of my normal YouTube videos are 100% scripted, but they all have elements of being scripted. So most of the time when I'm talking and it's my face visible in the frame and talking to camera, those sections might be what I would call lightly scripted in the sense that I have written down what I intend to say in those sections. And then I read the piece of paper and then I put the piece of paper down and then I say as much of it uh, as yeah. I can remember. This is a classic. Yeah, the read yeah. and look, the read and look. Yeah. <laughs> and so through the read and look process, it will mostly resemble what I wrote on the paper, but there'll be small differences that go slightly off track 
where I kind of said it in a different way, or there might be one point that I just left as a bullet point and I just say that. But it feels natural in your voice at that time. Mm, like that's yeah. the key thing, right? Like the delivery feels natural. Yeah, yeah. So those are for those parts. And then when it cuts in my videos to an overhead shot where you can't see my face, you might just see an exam or a piece of paper or some other thing, even maybe stock footage. Those sections tend to be unscripted. And it's because when I don't have my face on the camera and I'm just like filming an exam or a book as I'm flicking through it, I feel a lot more comfortable just talking off the cuff and saying the ideas as I see them on the page because I know that I can take as many takes as I want and edit it together in a non-linear way if I need to. And I don't need to worry about the lighting changing or how I look. And if I was looking at the camera, like my face not being on screen for those sections makes me so much more comfortable to speak my mind unscripted and, and just know that something that by the end of it, I'll be able to salvage and cut together. And then you're the one who edits it together. So do you have an editor or is it a solo job? I currently am doing everything on the channel in the sense that I don't have a team um, working with me. On some special videos in the past, I have hired people here and there to do certain little bits. But for the most part, yeah, the normal videos that I'm making are just me. So I edit it. So to go back into, I guess, the process. So you pick your topic, you know what you want to talk about, and you say, right, the best way that this topic is served with my intended audience is this format. And so I'm going to make the video like this. It's going to be a Bob Ross video or whatever it is. How do you characterize your audience? And do you have an audience in mind for each specific video or do you have an audience in mind for your channel as a whole? Yeah, this is, I think, an interesting question because usually when people ask me, like, who is your audience? Well, I have a sense of who my audience are and I can get that from the analytics. They give you, you know, like age demographics and things like that. It used to be 18 to 24, but now I think it's skewing slightly older than that. Your audience is growing up. <laughs> yeah, they might be growing uh, with me as I, as I continue. I, I can sort of see who they are. And I used to say to people, you know, like, oh, I make videos and my audience are like students or people at university or people that are interested in science. But that is actually not the true answer to who do I make videos for and I hope this is not too confusing or, or weird, but actually when I am conceiving of a video and thinking about how I'm going to communicate it, really I'm making it for this ethereal version of myself. And what I mean by that is when I pick topics and the level at which I'm communicating the ideas, I'm not simplifying them down to maybe who I was five or 10 years ago and, and the math I knew then. I'm actually making it for me and the knowledge I have right now. So usually the math ideas that I cover are things that I have the capability of understanding right now. And, and often for my videos, I need to research and remind myself, how does this work? How do I solve a problem like that? And so the, it's not like I am 10 steps ahead and I'm making content for people younger than me or trying to inspire like the next generation to get into science, I feel like I'm making it not for a younger version of myself, but for a version of myself right now who is interested in learning this right now and, and wants to know these topics. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. it definitely makes sense. 
you're almost like a time traveller. You're phasing through time to reach past Toby and be like, hey, <laughs> let me save you a whole load of time. A time traveller explaining time travel. That is, that's a meta, isn't it? In one of your videos, you've talked about time travel, right? So I feel like that's a, a nice <laughs> a nice thing to think. Yeah, I have made some time travel videos. But yeah, if there's time travel involved in the video process, it's not me going back to my past self from here. It's a future self visiting me now. And I guess making the video with me of like, this is what you'd like to learn right now. There's a really cool video I'd watch where you make that super explicit. We were like, hey, I'm Toby from the future. Right. Here, let me explain this to you. It's like a self-Socratic format. I really like that idea. The funny thing is that we're talking about time travel and my latest video was actually about time travel. But so was the video that I mentioned to you earlier in the podcast that I made in 2010 when I was in high school. That video was also about time travel. So it seems that time travel has interested me the entire time and I've never got tired of it. Oh. I love that. <laughs> You've always got time for it. Yeah, exactly. Always time. The original video that's on my channel, like the 2010 one, it's just like I watched one documentary and then I made this video. Now I think I know a lot more about the math and everything, but it's still a topic that fascinates me. And maybe in another 10 years, I'll make a, an update. <laughs> Yeah. And actually, what, what's for the topic of older videos? Can you explain why your most viewed video is about VeggieTales? I was going to ask about VeggieTales as well. When we were asking about formats, I was like, and what process did you go through with the VeggieTales video? Well, yeah, I can explain the whole story, but it depends how off the rails you want this <laughs> podcast to get. I'm pulling the lever. We're going off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Let's explain what this VeggieTales video is. Basically, on Toby's channel from about seven years ago, there's a video titled VeggieTales Predicts Modern Internet Humour. And what is VeggieTales? I'm so glad you asked, Simon. VeggieTales is basically this CGI animated cartoon. It's American. It's vegetables that talk. And it predicts modern internet humour. What more could you want? What more could you want? It's a weird thing that is on my channel. And it's a weird thing that it has like 14 million views or something now. You know, I was talking earlier that, you know, all the way through studying, I was kind of uploading videos here and there to the channel. Not all of them were science videos. Some of them were just random videos that I wanted to share with a friend. And the best way to share a video seemed to be to upload a clip to YouTube and then share the link with someone. And so that's kind of what I did with the VeggieTales video. And for years and years, it had maybe like 20 views. It was just not, it was not even like a popular video in any sense. But then the algorithm a few years ago worked its little magic and just thought, you know what? Everyone needs to see this. <laughs> Everyone needs to see this clip. <laughs> and now it's kind of funny. I think initially I'd seen that VeggieTales clip mentioned in a blog post on Tumblr but the Tumblr post didn't link to the full video, which is why I was sharing the full video as kind of a reply to the blog post describing it that was popular on Tumblr at the time. And then it ended up getting 17, I just checked, million views. <laughs> there we go. Does that frustrate you though? Are you not like, oh, come on, I've got so many like well thought out videos on my channel, so many things that I feel like are worth watching and this is my most viewed video? Or is it more just like a funny thing that you are just like, yeah, well, that's YouTube. Yeah, it's more of a funny thing. Like I'm not jealous of it getting views as opposed <laughs> to my other videos. 
It's a little bit tear-inducing if I go into the analytics of it and I look at how much ad revenue it has made for somebody else because it was obviously copyright claimed, so it should be because I didn't make it. And the Cartoon Network has earned maybe $20,000 or something ludicrous from that video. Would have been nice if I could have had that, but I didn't deserve it. So yeah. <laughs> I'll have to let it go. Give yourself some credit, Toby. You are the one who uploaded it. That took time. Time is money, you know. <laughs> Captain's Log, we appear to be in a star-forming region of space, a nebula. But instead of large, bloated, loud balls of gas, the stars being formed here are very different. They're stars of online educational video, making long-form content about science, geopolitics, and video games, among other subjects. That's right, Captain Picard. Nebula is a streaming service owned by a collection of creators, including Sophie and I, that hosts innovative, educational, and inspirational content from some of your favorite video and podcast makers. You can listen to all episodes of How to Make a Science video ad-free on Nebula, but you can also watch exclusive content from other creators such as Our Changing Climate, Lindsay Ellis, Wendover Productions, and many more. Exclusive content includes individual videos from your favorite creators, but also entire series such as Jetlag and Red Atoms. Get access to Nebula by signing up at go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. That's our special How to Make a Science Video link. And by using it, you can get 40% off a membership plan and support the show. Again, that link is go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. Computer, put Nebula on the main view screen. Engage. So going back to the bread and butter videos that you're making, not the VeggieTales stuff, but the science stuff, you've got your subject, you've got the format that you know it's going to work in. What's the first step of taking that idea and going to a complete script? Do you sort of start by stating your objectives at the top of a script? Do you kind of structure it in terms of like beats? Like what's your process? I feel like I don't do any of that good stuff that you kind of mentioned, like the the breaking it into story beats and the actually, you know, thinking of an objective half the time. And that's actually something I'd like to do more of and do better. But I'll tell you what I currently do, which is I become interested in a topic and I have to have an idea of what the title is going to be before I will actually start working on it. Because if I have something I'm interested in, but I can't quite fit it into like a YouTube title, then I know it's probably never going to quite work out. So anyway, if I get an interesting title in my mind, I will then just start researching it. And I kind of just learn all that I can about this topic. So As an example, I'll I'll use the video that I'm currently working on and hoping to film this week, which is a video about the original 1950 paper by Alan Turing, which he talks about the imitation game, which has now come to be known as a Turing test. The idea for that video was just an idea of, hey, I've never actually read that original paper but people talk about it all the time and they use seemingly the idea of the Turing test to explain lots of things and it comes up a lot in discussions. I reckon it would be interesting to have a look at what Alan Turing actually said in this paper. That was the idea. 
And then I have gone into just researching it. So I read the paper and then have tried to like sort of research little bits around it, research anything I didn't understand in the paper or see what else exists on the internet about the paper. And then once I feel like I understand it well, which I'll never fully understand the all of like a topic, but once I feel like I understand it enough, I will write a document where I sort of script that introduction section, the, the face to camera part where I want to succinctly introduce what I'm about to show. But for this video, I'm planning to just only script that part. And then for the next part of the video, I'm planning to just put the paper down in front of the camera. I've already gone through and highlighted parts of the manuscript that I want to mention, but I am just going to talk off the cuff about those highlighted sections and see what comes out of that at the end. That's what I'm doing for this next video. I haven't got story beats. In fact, I'm a bit worried for this video that it doesn't have enough storytelling at all because it doesn't really have a villain or it doesn't have a hero's journey or an arc or things like that. And I actually do feel a bit worried about that sometimes. I think maybe I should do more of that in my content. But also it is hard for me at least to think about how to incorporate those ideas when I'm showing a historical document. And I'd actually be interested if you guys have any ideas on how to incorporate that. I several times on this call have like described you as a storyteller. So it's interesting that you are concerned about story elements because I just feel like the way that you even just set up a video, like it feels like a story in the way you present it. I don't know why like it doesn't I think sometimes we get trapped in like a story has to be the sort of hero's journey and it can be subtler than that and I think an Alan Turing story is one of the most tragic and like frustrating in lots of ways in sort of science history and so his story in itself is this overshadowing thing of this paper it's like kind of the background to the video so yeah it's a, it's an interesting fear that you have I don't know what you think Simon. I'm now thinking of how I'd represent the paper and do it in an interesting way. Can you treat it as a character within a story? Like, can you give it its own kind of setting? The thing that's rattling around my head at the moment is, how many pages long is the paper? Oh, it's not overly long. It could be like 10 printed A4 pages. Okay, right. If it was a really long paper, I had it in my head, it might be like 100 pages long. You could make it like, if it was me, I'd do it in Blender and I'd have like a 3D object that was made out of the pages of the paper. And then you can move the camera around and zoom in on the specific pages. But that's because I've got a bit of a thing for Blender at the moment. <laughs> I think the way I'm thinking about the storytelling at the moment with content like this, which it kind of falls into the unboxing category, like I'm unboxing a paper that most people haven't read in its entirety, but they've probably heard of. I'm thinking about it as if I have this paper and I just found it or something and I want to show it to a friend and be like, hey, like I found this paper, like it's actually kind of interesting. Like, let me show you like on page one, he talks about this thing. Like, isn't that kind of cool? That is the mm. storytelling to me. It's like the storytelling that I would have to a friend. You know, when you are like at university or whatever or school and you come out of an exam and there's this excitement amongst students telling each other how they did in the exam or like asking yeah, people yeah. like, oh, what did you think of that question? Yeah, what do you get? What do you write for that one? That was a back page? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes they let you take home like the questions or something, the questions mm, paper. Yeah. It's always a mistake. Students at home never do that because it's uh, it's the road to ruin, trust me. And I think if I imagine pulling out that question paper and showing it to someone else who didn't do the course and being like, 
yeah, this is what my exam looked like with this course I just did. Yeah, it's kind of cool, but these questions were hard. These questions are easy. That's kind of the storytelling energy I'm trying to capture. But yeah, I'm always on the lookout for ways to do that better. Could you not do a video where it's like POV, you are Tabisa's friend and like you are literally in different locations. Like, hey, look at this paper. Isn't this really cool? And like, you know, you're in a coffee shop, you're in a library or whatever. And like, you know, the camera, it's almost like peep show, I guess. <laughs> like, it's just you really excitedly <laughs> explaining. Well, on this page, this happens. That's really leaning into the ASMR angle, isn't it? <laughs> maybe. Uh, in fact, maybe I should do those some call them annoying street interviews where you show something to someone's face and you say, hey, look at this, look at this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's full TikToker of you if you want to do that. How much rent do you pay? And also read Alan Turing's paper with me. <laughs> I was going to ask, actually. So, I mean, you just really neatly described your process. Really interesting to me. How does all that process change on TikTok then compared to YouTube? Is it the same steps but shorter or is it a completely different process? It's different because I would say on TikTok, they're like 99% scripted because that's the only way that I'll be able to say anything in the 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it more looks like I type out the script. It'll be like a few lines and then I print it out and then I take it outside, which is where I have a setup. I'll have a chalkboard and there's some flowers in the background and I'll um, set up my camera and tripod out there and I'll be holding this printed out a4 piece of paper and it's similar to what I said earlier like I'll look at it I'll try to remember as much as I can and then I'll present it to the camera instead of having the overhead sections where I can sort of take a breather and and not worry about what I look like I now have b cam zooming in on the chalkboard where that's where I can hide any of my mistakes if I say anything wrong I go to the b cam of the chalkboard so that also (laughs) provides a bit of relief to me but filming outside I don't know if you guys have ever tried it it's absolutely can be a nightmare it's a nightmare Nightmare. it is a nightmare yeah yeah which is a shame because I really like it like I like the light I like being around greenery and every time I've tried it it's like you know there decides to be a bird like squawking next to me the light there's clouds going in and out yeah it's a mess yeah. And we don't even live in a country where everything wants to kill you. Like, you know, there's additional dangers for Toby filming outside. <laughs> yeah. I have once seen a snake while I was filming, but it was going oh, wow. into the distance. But filming outside um, has all its own challenges. And I used to do it for my long format videos sometimes. And those were the Bob Ross inspired ones. And those might be like a 15 minute video done outside. But I actually stopped doing them just because of how hard they were to film. And it was just so traumatic to try and film a 15 minute video outside that I actually was like, nah, you know what, this isn't it for me. I don't enjoy making these videos. But the format has researched on, um, it's come back with a second life on TikTok because it's a lot easier to do a 60 second video outside than it is to do a 15 minute one. And so mm-hmm. it has allowed me to bring back that format in a way that is doable for me. And that doesn't cause me to have like nearly a mental breakdown while I'm filming because there's a plane going <laughs> overhead and the neighbor is mowing the lawn and then the other neighbor starts mowing their lawn. And then I'm just like, nah, I can't do it. But the funny thing is that people always comment on my outdoor videos like, oh, you look so calm and peaceful and I love a peaceful (laughs) tutorial. And if they knew my inner thoughts 
and the things I have to crop out of those videos, it's like not that tranquil. <laughs> yeah, if it played for another five seconds, it you'd be like, shut the F up, play the name and extort. I never yell at anyone, yeah. but it's just my disappointed face waiting for the plane to like stop. Mm. I can so see that. I can imagine the camera rolling for five more seconds and your disappointed oh, face. You know just what, like, actually, Toby, you are peak. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed energy. Like, oh, no. oh, oh, yeah. Gosh, the pain of that. <laughs> So something I actually want to ask you, because you talked a bit about TikTok and how you really like the community there and the duets and the stitches. And on YouTube, you, you know, that's just something that doesn't develop in the same way. But obviously a main place you can keep in touch with your community on YouTube is through comments. So the big question, do you read your comments? How much do you read them? Um, I read a decent number of the ones that come in on each new video. Like when the video is new, I read a lot of the comments, but as soon as the video is no longer the latest one, I kind of stop reading the comments on it. I don't know if you guys have the YouTube Studio app will show you like the last three or five comments that were posted anywhere on your channel. Whenever I check the YouTube Studio app for whatever reason, I will see those few comments. And that's kind of all I really see now, unless I'm actively like releasing a new video and waiting to see if people like it. I guess a more succinct version of that answer is I don't read a lot of comments. I think that's just a place that I've become happy to be. Yeah, I was going to say, your mental health is all the better for it. <laughs> yeah. So in the absence of feedback from the comments, not absence, but largely devoid of, of feedback from the comments, what determines if a video is successful or not, on YouTube specifically? That's the golden question, isn't it? And the difficult one. You know, I try to think in my own mind whether I'm happy with the video or not before it goes up so that you can say like, oh, you know, no matter how this goes, I think it was a good video. It's very hard to do that and then truly believe that a video is a good video if it performs really badly or, or doesn't get a lot of views. But I still try to, you know, make that own decision myself. Like, do I think this is a good video? And I'd say what I most use to measure my own success is, is not the views on each video, but really like, if somebody that I really respect also liked it, like occasionally somebody that I look up to will like retweet one of my videos or share its link in a newsletter or something like that. And that to me makes me feel like, wow, that video, I love it now because somebody that I respect also seems to have liked this video. And, and to me, those are the yeah. most special moments. Yeah. And a video that I know has had that response recently is your short films. Can you just briefly tell us about the genesis, uh, well, what the film is and what the, how, the, how it came to be? Yes, well, I suppose you're talking about Finding X. Many of us have been asked to find X, but for something to be found, it must first have been lost. On the number line, life was well-defined, Prized fields and blue skies, things were pretty organised. Until one non-ordinary day, when all patterns went astray. This is the story of X, who was born to shock and surprise with an equation too tough to analyse. That is a very different video of mine. It's kind of an experimental video. It's all animated with like stop motion felt and it was 
heaps of effort, way more than any other video on my channel. It came about actually because I had a grant from Screen Australia, which is a Australian government body who give out money to like the film and TV industry usually, but also now online creators, which I think is super cool for them to be recognizing us. They give out a little grant to make a thing. And because it's like a government body, the expectations of what you make, like it doesn't have to be financially beneficial to anyone. It just has to be a cool thing. And that allowed me to be really creative and to do something that wouldn't otherwise perhaps make financial sense to do, which is, you know, to make an animated short film, which is famously one of the most time consuming and like sort of expensive formats to make. But I loved it. And it was really my chance to write a narrative fictional story about math and where the characters were numbers and it's about X trying to find their value. And I loved working on that because I've always loved the intersection of art and poetry with mathematics. I've loved trying to write like math poems. And I think it's just because when you're in the mathematical scientific world, you're reading all these like jargon words, things like variable or like tangent or, you know, just these like mathematical words, they become part of your vocabulary. And so when I try to write poetry or think about poetry, naturally, I want to write about what's in my vocabulary, which happens to be all these mathematical things that all fit together in their own little world. And Finding X, I love that I was able to show that math can be a creative discipline. And that's kind of what I wanted to show off. Famously, people think that they are either a math person or a creative person. And I wanted to combine the two to show that it can be done. Yeah. yeah I think it was successful. And I know that at least one other person we've spoken to for this podcast also thinks you're successful mm. because they said they watched it with their kids and loved it. Oh, really? Oh, that's so nice. I think the key is to be yourself very interested in the content that you're sharing. And I think that you can't quite fake it in a sense that if if the presenter or the teacher of the content is not just as interested and is not showing their genuine emotions and interest in the subject, I think that is where a lot of the content that I think doesn't succeed kind of comes under that banner. And that's probably what I try to keep in mind most often. And it manifests in little bits of advice, like it can be better to include a cut or a recording that is a little bit I would call underripe in the sense that it hasn't been totally like edited or totally highly produced, but it was something you recorded when you were at your most enthusiastic or when you most cared about the subject. And I think it's better to include that cut than to refilm it a month later when you kind of have mentally moved on and you might get a more perfect recording, but it might not have that same passion in it. And so that is something that I keep in mind when it comes to engaging people with science on YouTube. We finish these chats by asking our guests the same five quickfire questions, starting with, if I gave you a million dollars, what video would you make? Interesting. A million dollars is a huge amount. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could make many videos with that amount. In fact, I don't think I could possibly spend a million dollars on a video that I would want to make. Let me just say that if I had a bunch of money to make a thing, 
then I would love to actually make a documentary actually, or like a a series of like documentary-esque videos about exams and about how exams work around the world. And in a way that I can't really do on my current channel where it's kind of just me and, and I would need a team for this, which is why I would need to spend some of your million dollars to make this, to travel around the world and go and talk to the students who are currently studying for and facing these really big exams in their life, which are to them extremely important. You know, it might be their exam to get into university or not, which in some countries like India or or China or other places, it's so intensely competitive to get into certain universities that these exams are like their own like culture. Like it's such a big thing for these students. I'd love to spend time with those students following them around as they, you know, prepare for these exams and film their struggles and maybe try to help them in some way and maybe try to understand that world and the perspective of those students. But this is also very hard to do because I wouldn't know how to do it without getting in their way. Because the last thing you would want is to be Mm. following around someone who's studying for a really important exam and to somehow Mm. distract them from it or like be in their way. I'd love to figure out that problem. It's like being a nature documentary maker. It's, you know, you're, you're David Attenborough, but for yeah. people taking the IEEE. <laughs> I have a camera trap in like the room that they're like revising in. So every time they go in to revise, the camera trap goes off and starts filming them revising. <laughs> yeah. I hope that's not the least exciting answer you've had to the million dollar question. I think that's an excellent answer. That's an excellent answer. Yeah. 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 Second question. What one change would you make to YouTube to improve the site? At the moment, if I was to point out bad features on YouTube, I'd probably start with their implementation of shorts, which I don't want to say anything too mean, but I prefer the interface on TikTok and I find the current interface on YouTube shorts to be in most ways worse than the interface on TikTok. It's worse in ways to do with engagement because when I talk about stitches and duets, those I don't think I've ever seen on YouTube. It doesn't seem to be easy to collaboratively make videos as a community on YouTube, even though they have the short form videos. They don't have quite the features to make it possible. And also my gripe with the shorts is that I'm still seeing a lot of stolen content that seems to be unaddressed. I don't know what they're doing behind the scenes. Even like TikTok creators having their videos reposted by third parties on YouTube shorts and it seems to be rampant on the platform. I'd probably try to to get rid of that or fairly credit the original creators, give them a way to find their content. That's a great answer and an interesting perspective because I think you're the only person we've spoken to who is particularly like into TikTok. So I think that's a really like good bit of insight. Okay, well, next question. Our two strong answers, Toby, the precious building. Okay, (laughs) what do you think educational video will look like in 10 years time? I hope that it is still around, but my confidence that it will be is not necessarily that high. I'd like it to be because it's part of my job and it's a big part of what I do. So I would like it to still exist. Probably there will be a rise, I guess, in um, all of the AI generated content and that people will be perhaps more motivated to put their face on the camera 
to avoid their content looking indistinguishable from that of AI-generated scripts over AI-generated stock footage? Mm. I don't know. I'd have to think more about that one too. They're tough questions. You know, we say they're quickfire, but these are difficult yeah. to answer. I think Educational Video in 10 Years' Time is going to be Toby's like next time travel series, talking about 10 years. <laughs> we'll find out next week when future Toby comes back and tells us. Yeah, exactly. Okay, next question. With the exception of people on this call, so the three of us, who is one creator you think everyone should be watching? I think that what I do on YouTube, um, getting people engaged with science is one kind of content on science YouTube, but there's another kind of content which I don't consider myself to do, and that is actually the teaching content. People who actually don't care so much about just raising awareness of certain ideas or just getting engagement in science full stop, but they care about teaching the ideas in a way that are memorable and in a way that people can go away from the video and try the problems themselves and actually get real learning out of it. And a great creator for that is Looking Glass Universe for quantum mechanics. I would say hers are the best quantum mechanics videos I've seen that encourage the student to deeply learn and to deeply think about the ideas outside of the videos. And I consider them different from my videos in the sense that when I'm making content, I'm more just hoping that someone will watch my video and think, hey, that was cool. I might like to learn more in my own time. I find that Looking Glass Universe, she actually um, sets you up to really learn. Her and Three Blue, One Brown as well, I think also is good at that. Excellent. And then our final question is, what is one video you think everyone should watch? I would have to go for a classic Vsauce video in terms of yeah, if I only get to recommend one video, it'd, it'd be pretty much anything from Vsauce that may be um, Laws and Causes by Vsauce, I think is kind of a must watch for people interested in science, physics, math, and interested in, in it from a totally new perspective, connecting it to ideas that I've never really seen it connected to before. And I think that's what Vsauce is great at. So I'd I'd submit that one. Fabulous. You've done it, Toby. Great answer. That's the first Vsauce recommendation. Yeah, it is the first Vsauce recommendation. It's been a really varied bunch of recommendations. So, Simon, we just had a delightful chat with Toby. What did you take away from that primarily? There was a lot that I took away from it around choosing a format and the differences in approaching content on YouTube versus TikTok. I think if I had to isolate one thing, something that she said that really stuck with me was that on YouTube, topic is king. Mm. And I know that in a previous episode, when we spoke to Brian from Real Engineering, we made the point about how thumbnails are everything. But I think both of those things are true. I think you know, a good thumbnail is only good if it represents a topic that people are interested in. And I think you have to remind yourself when saying topic is king, that an interesting topic is only interesting to a certain group of people. It might be a large group, but it's not necessarily going to be interesting to everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think when you are coming up with video ideas, you have to come up with a topic that you go, yes, this is interesting to this group of people, but not expect 8 billion views. Because Unless you have a video that's like how to breathe, an easy <laughs> two-step procedure, it's not going to be interesting to everyone. Or unless you've got a video about VeggieTales predicting insect Apparently humor. so. What about you? What did you take away from our conversation? I really loved when Toby said about 
riding the enthusiasm wave and mm. how make your content while you're still enthusiastic and still excited about it because I really feel like the process of making something and thinking about getting into that stage of thinking about well how's the edit going and when you've seen it for too long it can really steamroll that enthusiasm out of you mm. and I think that enthusiasm is also something that can drive you to bring together science and art like Toby does did in the X film I think it's also something that forces you to try new formats. 100%. The yeah. creators that have really long careers are the people that don't do the same thing over and over and over again because that would drive anyone mad. Like by just you can talk about the same subjects but by changing the way in which you're talking about it you can get a whole new lease of enthusiasm. Yeah, exactly, and you can only put that energy in to develop that new format if you are genuinely excited by it. And the number of times I've been like falling asleep, felt really excited by an idea, written the, like started writing the script, doing the research, and then I just eke out too long, almost yeah. because it's too important to me. Like this topic is too great, it feels too shiny, so I want to do it perfectly, and then you just end up not really making it at all. To quote another excellent YouTuber, Hank Green has always said that 90% is good enough. Yeah. Get it to 90%, because getting it to 90% takes as long as getting it from 90% to 100%. And by that point, you probably lost your enthusiasm. So as yeah, I completely agree, as Toby says, ride the enthusiasm wave. And that links into what she was saying about authenticity, which is also really valuable in SciComm. It's almost like she had some really great insights and we can't actually summarise it in just a couple of minutes. Exactly. Almost like that. That's all for now, but next episode is our final episode of the season and we are going to be talking to... Hi there, I'm Sabrina Cruz. I'm a video producer at Answer in Progress where we make videos tracking the journey from question to answer, showing usually failure along the way. <laughs> The science that I'm communicating is just the process of doing a science, which is asking questions, beefing it, going in the wrong direction for a solid 30 days, hating yourself afterwards, going right back to square one. <laughs> Thank you for listening to How to Make a Science Video, a Nebula podcast. The producer was me, Simon Clark. Our music and editing were provided by Fergus Hall and our artwork by Lizzie Fiakovsky. Thank you again to Toby for joining us. You can watch her videos at youtube.com forward slash to these. If you enjoyed this episode, please do recommend the podcast to your friends and rate us on your podcasting service of choice. Mm -hmm.